Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. Like I said, my name is Alex McNeely. I'm our campus pastor here for Clearnote Campus Fellowship. We do work on campus in the... Um, the school year is coming up fast, so be, please be in prayer for us as we prepare for the school year and seek to reach more students with the gospel and call them into fellowship with Christ. As Jody mentioned earlier, um, this summer we're in a series going through Psalms 21 through 30. Um, in this series, we're singing Psalms, we're preaching through the Psalms, and this morning we come to Psalm chapter 28. So if you have a Bible, please open to Psalm 28 with me. If you don't, you can follow along um, on the screen behind me. So this is Psalm 28, and this is God's Word, and it is eternally true. It says this. It's a Psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help. When I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary, do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Requite them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite them according to the deeds of their hands. Repay them their recompense. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the deeds of His hands, He will tear them down and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because He has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. Therefore my heart exults, and with my song I shall thank Him. The Lord is their strength, and He is a saving defense to His anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. Praying is hard. And anyone who says differently is selling something. If you read what old Christians have written about prayer, at least ones who are honest and godly, you'll read that prayer is a real challenge. I'm going to pull something. This is on a whim. I'm pulling up a quote on my phone here. I had to look up some old things. But here's some quotes. Um, Here's one from a man named E.M. Bounds who did a lot of writing and teaching on prayer. This is what he says about prayer. He says, Prayer is spiritual work, and human nature does not like taxing spiritual work. Human nature wants to sail to heaven under a favoring breeze, a full, smooth sea. Prayer is humbling work, It abases intellect and pride, crucifies vainglory, and signs our spiritual bankruptcy. And all these are hard for flesh and blood to bear. Charles Spurgeon said, I usually feel more dissatisfied with my prayers than with anything else I do. Prayer is a real challenge. It's like engaging in battle against yourself and often can even feel like wrestling with God himself. Sometimes to me it even feels like God is deaf to me. Rarely do I experience prayer that enraptures me in glorious feelings of heavenly transport. 
I would say more often than I would like, my prayers feel more like asking, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? Now, I'm not here to preach on Psalm 13, which is what I just quoted the first couple of verses of. But this psalm, Psalm 28, starts very much in the same vein as Psalm 13, another psalm of David. And there are many psalms that seem to express this sentiment, the feeling that God is actually not listening. The psalms are honest about the difficulty of prayer because King David is honest in his prayers. He's not living a lie when it comes to his experience seeking after communion with God. David has thoughts and he says things that we don't think we're allowed to think or say or acknowledge. And here we have another psalm of David, and it's yet another psalm where David cries out to God for help. David, the king, the warrior, the shepherd, the man's man who fought hand-to-hand with bear and lion, David was constantly in need of God's protection, God's comfort, and God's provision. Now this psalm has four different parts to it. It's kind of broken up into four different sections. The first three verses are a request that God would listen. Verses four and five are a declaration of God's judgment on the wicked. Verses six and seven, David rejoices in God's provision of strength and protection. And then the last two verses are a prayer for God's blessing on his people. So the first thing is that David asked God his rock that he would listen. He asked God to listen to him. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. Do you ever feel like God is deaf to you? David did. I do. If you don't ever feel that way, I suspect you don't pray very much. Because David prayed a lot, and it seems like he felt this way a lot. On Wednesday, this past Wednesday, I spent several hours seeking after God in prayer. Now, don't get the wrong idea. That's actually not a frequent occurrence for me. And I also wouldn't be telling you about it if it were some glorious spiritual experience. It wasn't. It was actually mostly miserable. You want to know how my prayer time ended? I was caught up into the third heaven. No. I was lying on my back on a bench under a tree and I felt something hit my chest, and it was bird poop. (laughs) It was glorious and rapturous. No, it wasn't. My wife, Danny, can testify that when I went home Wednesday evening after that time of trying to pray, I was mostly discouraged and tired. But I think I found out something about myself, which I'm sure I found out the last time I devoted part of a day to prayer, but then promptly forgot. And that is that I'm not sure I really want my comfort and my peace completely dependent on God. I don't like that. I'd rather have my comfort and peace tied to things I can see and touch and control. But when I pray to God, I get the sense that that's not really an option. But the life of a Christian is a life of utter dependency on God. You can see that in David's prayer. If you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. 
Our life and health is inseparably tied to God's presence and to His open ear. And it is miserable to feel forsaken by God. In fact, it feels like being dragged off to hell. God, would you please listen? Will you hide your face forever? If you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Now, there are two ways to deal with this misery, the misery of feeling forsaken by God. One is to harden yourself. The other is to humble yourself. One is to turn away from God and find something else to trust in besides Him because you don't want to be dependent on Him anyways. The other is to acknowledge the righteousness of God's judgments and cast yourself on His mercy waiting for His answer to your plea. If you go to God not trusting Him, not wanting to be dependent on Him, praying to Him will be an awful experience for you. Being in His presence will be a terrible taste of His judgment, and you won't want to have anything to do with Him. And I think this is why prayer is so difficult. We are so reluctant, so resistant to giving our hearts over to God. Prayer is so challenging for us because it's impossible to pray and be proud. It's impossible to pray and not lower yourself and submit yourself to God. To come into God's presence is to be made low. And you can either rejoice and rest in that reality like a little child, or you can despise it and want to have nothing to do with Him. Psalm 28 teaches us the right way to pray. It doesn't teach us that prayer is always just sunshine and bliss, but rather that it's often terrifying. But it doesn't stop there. It then teaches us how to persevere in prayer. You see, David doesn't hold anything back. He doesn't hedge his bets with God. He doesn't leave his options open. If you are silent to me, it's okay. I've got other options, God, if you don't answer. That's not how David prays. If you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. David's happiness, his contentment, hinges entirely on whether or not God is listening. There's no other option for David. He cries out, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help. Hear me, God. And this is because David's heart trusts in the Lord. David knows that his only possible hope is to have God's listening ear, and if he doesn't have that, he has nothing. David's willing to give everything up for the sake of having God's favor. Verse 7, what this whole psalm hinges on is in verse 7. David says, my heart trusts in him. Even in David's sorrow at the beginning of the psalm, what's evident is that his heart trusts in God and that God is his only source of hope. So that's how the psalm begins, is with David simply asking God to listen to him, to hear his prayer. And then in the midst of asking God to listen, David pleads with God not to drag him away with the wicked. Now God's judgment is not just a hypothetical construct. God is reminding us in this psalm that He will judge the wicked. He will bring unrepentant sinners to a terrible end. God will drag away those who work iniquity who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. God is just. 
He will repay each one according to his deeds. If you've repented of your sin and found forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ, which atones for that sin, reminders of God's judgment are actually a comfort to you. It's a comfort to the godly to know that God does not just forget about sin, but that he cancels the debt we owe by nailing it to the cross. Furthermore, remembering God's perfect justice is actually what helps us to keep from taking out our own vengeance against our enemies. We know that God will judge rightly in the end. We can love our enemies because we know that God is a perfect judge and we have nothing to worry about when he is judge. If you've repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, God's judgment is strength and comfort to you. And you will love those reminders of God's justice as you come across them in the Psalms. However, if you are still in bondage to your sins, to pride and deceit and greed and lust, the mention of God's judgment leaves a bad taste in your mouth. The godly rejoice in God's judgment because they have felt the weight of it and have seen their Savior Jesus Christ willingly bear that weight on the cross. The ungodly cringe at God's judgments. They turn their face away and stop up their ears to avoid dealing with his wrath. And this turning away from God's judgments doesn't just describe atheists who openly repudiate God's word. It also describes many Christians who find God's judgments in Scripture distasteful. I was talking with my brother the other day. He's a faithful pastor down in Florida. And we were discussing how the imprecatory psalms, that's psalms like this one, which rejoice in God's judgment, We were discussing how these kinds of psalms are applicable to Christians today. In that conversation, I realized I think the very question, how are the imprecatory psalms like this one applicable to Christians today, that very question stems from a small view of sin. We, even conservative, reformed Christians who believe in capital T, total depravity, we find it unpalatable that God says he drags the wicked away and requites them according to the evil of their deeds. How gross that God would prepare deadly weapons and make his arrows fiery shafts to kill the wicked. That's Psalm 7, by the way. If you're a Christian and God's judgment baffles you, if you can't understand how these imprecatory psalms which rejoice in God's wrath against sinners make any sense... I suggest you re-examine your spiritual, spiritual state and whether or not you really believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to shed His own blood to pay for your sins. Because each time you think that God is being unreasonable in His wrath against sin, you're declaring that you do not deserve that wrath. And if you don't deserve that wrath, you have no part in Christ who died for sinners. God's mercy is only for those who rightly condemn themselves according to God's righteous judgments. The Lord's mercy is for those who walk in the light of His word, exposed and confessing their sins. Those ones will find mercy, grace, and help in time of need. But those who hold their own court of justice in their hearts, separate from God's righteous declarations, will have no part in the kingdom of heaven. 
Why is it that David pleads with God, do not drag me away with the wicked? Doesn't that sound like a faithless thing to say? David, you won't be. But David prays that because he understands his sin. He walks before God in his integrity, not pretending to be righteous, but knowing that he is desperately in need of God's mercy and loving kindness. David's heart trusts in the Lord and even in his judgments. My heart trusts in him, is what David says. And it's that heart trust in God that separates the godly from the wicked. When it comes down to it, the difference between those who are dragged away to judgment and those who are heard by God is this. My heart trusts in Him. God listens to the prayer of those who trust in Him. But the wicked who trust in themselves and in money and in power and in houses and in the things of this world, God will tear them down and not build them up. And so the question is, as you come to this psalm, what does your heart trust in? Where do you go for comfort and deliverance from your troubles? The answer to that question determines whether God will tear you down or build you up. There's no neutral ground. It's one or the other. If you exalt yourself, if you build yourself up, God will tear you down. If you humble yourself, God will build you up. And He really will build you up if you trust in Him and humble yourself under His hand. And here are ways that He does. The third part of this psalm, David rejoices in God's provision of strength and protection because God does wonderful things for those who trust in Him. If you place your faith in Him, there's no end to what God will do for you. In the last few verses of this psalm, I counted no fewer than eight things and just jam-packed in there, which God does for those who trust in Him. We'll run through these verses. First, God listens. Blessed be the Lord because He has heard the voice of my supplication. Notice the change from the beginning of the psalm. First, it was a plea that God would listen. And as happens in every psalm like this, it ends with the fulfillment of that request. David asks that God would listen, and then he rejoices that God has heard his plea. Now sometimes there's space between that request that God would listen and the fulfillment of that. Sometimes there's an intermission between those two things of fear and trembling and waiting and suffering, but God always hears his godly ones. If your heart trusts in God, he will answer you in your distress. He listens God strengthens you. He gives you strength you need to fight the battles you find yourself in. You battle against Satan, against your sinful flesh, against the fine-sounding arguments of this world. God will give you wisdom and purity and endurance in the midst of that battle. He strengthens you. And He's not just a weapon for us against those things. He protects us. He's a shield. God is our strength and our shield. He protects us. He keeps us from harm in the midst of these battles. God helps us. My heart trusts in Him and I am helped. He doesn't just send us off into battle, into fighting against our sin, against Satan, against His enemies. God goes with you. 
He goes alongside you to engage in that battle with you. Scripture says that He will crush Satan under your feet. God is a help in time of need. He defends you. God defends you against attack, even when lies are told about you. Even if someone or many are trying to actually kill you, as was the experience of King David, God carries your soul in his hand and in his heart, and he will not let his saints be persecuted without paying back their persecutors for their wickedness. He will judge rightly in the end, and he will be your advocate, and you have nothing to fear. He defends you. God saves his people. Save your people and bless your inheritance. God pours out blessing upon blessing in your life. You have everything you need and more in this life, and that pales in comparison to what you have waiting for you in the life to come. God blesses you. At the center of this song and of Ben's helpful children's sermon is the fact that God carries his people. I read this with my kids the other day at dinner. The New King James Version says, Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. And my son Whitaker asked what bear up means. So I went over and I picked up my daughter Jubilee and I held her to my chest. and said, that's what bear up means. There's no other better picture of it, like Ben was talking about. That's what it means for God to bear us up. And to God, the largest among us is a helpless child. Even Caleb's star, to God, is just a helpless child. Caleb, who could pick any one of us up, (laughs) needs God to pick him up. The most intelligent among us is, to God, nothing but a child. I told my kids, even when Daddy uses really big words, like Constantinople and Timbuktu, I'm no more sophisticated to God than my 18-month-old Simeon, whose biggest word is... How quickly and easily we forget what we are to God. We build ourselves up in our own estimation, convinced of how useful and strong and necessary we are to the advancement of God's kingdom, and yet in the end, this is what God says in Isaiah 40. He says, All flesh, that's you and me, all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We've been reading Isaiah in our family devotions, and as we go through a big book like that that's hard to read, I like to just latch on to different themes that seem to come out in a book like that, like the book of Isaiah. One of the things that has struck me as we go through it is this repeated theme of the insignificance of man when compared to God. Isaiah 2, at the end of an intense prophecy against God's people, Isaiah says, Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? Stop regarding man. But we regard ourselves highly. And we think God owes us everything. Stop regarding man. We are but little children in his eyes. How do you see yourself in God's eyes? Are you proud and haughty and lifted up 
Do you trust in yourself, in your money, in your gifts, in your work, your job, in what you can accomplish? Or does your heart trust in God? Are you like a little child who rejoices in your strong father, bearing you up, carrying you forever? What a comfort it is to have such a father who gives us all things if we only trust in him. And that's what this psalm is about. That's the centerpiece. My heart trusts in him. And that's what separates the godly and the wicked. And that's what causes God to hear our prayers is when we come to him actually trusting that he will listen and that he's able and willing to give us the things that we need. So let us trust in God and let us go to him in prayer.